Good morning. Today's reading is from Romans 8, 9 through 13. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. Am I good? Okay. Good morning, church. Great to be with you all this morning. There was a wedding here last night, and uh, if you don't know about it, Pastor Frank's daughter got married right here last night. Super excited. And so we're so excited for their families and so uh, excited to get to celebrate with them. Please be praying for Zach and Shelby. I'm thrilled to be here with you all today. So let me pray for us and we'll get going. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We are people of your word and we want to submit ourselves to the truth and beauty found here in your word in this section of Romans 8. So Lord of the many words that I feel like you've given me to share, if there are any that are ultimately not from you, God, let it be cast aside and forgotten. And let what's remembered here by these people today be what is from you and from your word, nothing else. No more, no less. Just just to you, God. We love you. Spirit move, spirit speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to start by telling you about a friend of mine named Brett Stromberg. Brett and I worked together at my first job in ministry, which was Calvary Chapel of Prescott from about 2003 to 2010 or so. And he and I worked together on the janitor crew, which is how Calvary would sort of train people in in service and ministry. And I did learn a lot about hard work through scrubbing toilets and showing up at 4 a.m. and setting up events. We were a busy church and a larger church. There was a lot to do. And so he and I worked together for a few years during my time there. And Brett had a pretty tough early life. He was only a couple years older than me. I think he was 22 or 3 at the time couple years older than me, but he had a tougher life than most. He experienced homelessness. He, he was in California, but experiencing homelessness there, drug addiction there, and all the just chaos and craziness that comes with that kind of lifestyle. And so you can imagine me, kind of a small town kid, just fascinated by his stories. Hey, tell me a story about the time you whatever. Uh, and he, he just had a mil- endless stories. He also had one of those laughs that's just kind of infectious and it was fun to be around. So it was fun to make him laugh. It was fun to hear stories. And you can imagine that as we cleaned together, scrubbing toilets, I'd be saying, Brett, tell me about the time you, whatever. So you can imagine what that was like. One of the stories he shared that he had a lot of these kinds of stories were squatters' rights stories where he tried to find a way onto a property that looked empty and stay there and occupy that. And his hope was, that eventually he'd get to like 
they, this is a dream, but, but to take over that property as a squatter and, and gain property rights. Now, I'm not trying to glorify that at all. Um, and he was never very good at it, by the way. Anyway, he never succeeded. He didn't have all these properties lined up. But, but this, is a, this is a thing I bring up because if you don't know about this thing, it's kind of a hangover from our early years as a country. But there are some modern uh, day rights that carry over to today. And a squatter can gain access to the property lawfully and occupy it if they can show any evidence of improvement over a set amount of time. In Arizona, it's two to 10 years. Then in theory, if all those things line up and just right, then in theory, you could take over the property rights of the, the place, as far as I understand it. Now, I remember when the pandemic started, that was at least a conversation happening in, in Phoenix and in Arizona. If you think about it, all the projects that were halfway through development that then got paused because of construction delays or financing concerns, all these kind of vacated properties. It was at least a conversation. I don't think it was very widely spread here, thankfully. It was enough to raise concern. The point is, the longer that the squatters remain uncontested on the property, the harder it can be to get rid of them. The quicker you get in and take that out, the, the, the less complicated it is. So why do I bring this up? Well, because in our text today, Romans 8, 9 through 13, we're going to see this idea of the spirit dwelling in us, the believer. And the spirit, just to be clear, is not the squatter in this instance. The spirit is the rightful owner. Romans 8 would call the squatter the flesh or sin or the law who would love to gain access and take over our dwelling place, the center of us. It's a word of encouragement today for those feeling stuck with the squatters, stuck in your sin, unsure how to see your way out of it. God's giving us some very practical ways to give the flesh its eviction notice from our dwelling place, to live into the greater reality that for the Christian, Christ does indeed dwell within you. His spirit dwells in you. And our job is to make no room in our hearts for the flesh or sin, to take up occupancy. We want to live into the reality that that space, that dwelling place is already occupied by the Spirit of God for the Christian. Now first, a few words about this series overall. We're only in week three of seven looking through just Romans 8. This series is called Life in the Spirit, and the Spirit is the main character in this passage especially. Romans 8 is one of the most dense theological chapters in the Bible. It is rich. There's a lot to talk about. So for that reason, we have been encouraging you to keep your Bible in front of you so you can read along and specifically keep up with Paul's rhetoric. Paul is building an argument towards a conclusion we want to be able to follow along. What does, this, what does life in the Spirit really look like? How do we live into it every week? And so this letter... Romans, the whole book, this letter was written by Paul the Apostle when he was in Corinth around 58 AD, a long time ago. After it was penned, it was delivered to the church in Rome by Phoebe. Shout out to Phoebe for that. Paul himself hoped to visit Rome soon to encourage the leaders there, yes, but expressly he had high hopes that this strategic church in a strategic city would then be used to springboard the gospel into new areas, specifically Spain is what Paul had in mind. The church in Rome was led by Gentiles as the Jews were, for a time, kicked out of the city 
They were booted out in an effort to try to calm down this growing faith in this Jesus Christ guy. Can we just get rid of them all and maybe that'll, that'll stop it. But eventually, the Jews, as things cooled down, came back into the city, back into the church. And so a major cultural and theological conflict arose within the church, especially around the law of God, followed by the Jews, a core center thing for the Jews, and the spirit of God in the life of all the believers. How do those things relate? And our section in chapter 8 is smack in the middle of Paul's rhetorical painting of the relation between the law, which we cannot fulfill in our flesh. That's part of the purpose of the law, is to show us that we fall short of the law, between that and the spirit of Christ who has fulfilled the law already, which is why you hear these terms used so often. As you read through chapter 8 and in the scripture reading, you might hear those terms back and forth and back and forth. Paul's doing a thing there on purpose. Paul's logic is based out of what's been called his two-regime theological framework. Now that's geeky. I'm going to get geeky a couple times with you, but that's Paul's, it's called his two-regime theological framework. A regime, of course, is a ruling, governing party. It's a metaphor to describe the reality that humanity all live under the governing authority of one or the other. The ruling party of the law of flesh and the ruling of the spirit. He's exposing the deeper question here, which is, which regime do you live under? Whose authority do you submit yourself to? Who or what dwells in you? That's the question. And sadly, Paul did visit Rome, but not primarily as a minister, but as a prisoner. Eventually, Paul died there by execution under Nero in about 67 AD, so almost 10 years after the letter was written. Here's what's cool, though. Paul's wishes that the gospel would continue to spread did happen just without him. The kingdom of God was still on the move, and it's still on the move today. Praise God for that. So this is the framework that Paul's writing from. And we start with him almost mid-thought in verse 9. So let's start by reading verses 8 through 9, just to get us started here. Paul says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This first verse is saying that you, Christian, you can please God. That's a pretty cool thing. We know that because verse 8, here if you're in the flesh, you can't please God, but you're not in the flesh. Thereby, you can please God. What a relief to be reminded of this sometimes. Doesn't it feel impossible or hopeless sometimes to live a life that's truly pleasing to God? It reminds me of 2 Timothy 2.21. I think about this all the time. Paul says this, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what's dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. And here's the point. Useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So homes in the ancient Near East had different pots for different things. Some were set aside for, let's say, bathroom-related purposes, and some were set aside for water and food storage. But what's important there is you don't mix those, right? You don't mix those. What happens if you accidentally use the water one as the bathroom one? Well, now you have another bathroom one. That's how that works, right? You don't switch it back and forth all the time. Paul's saying that to say, 
Which pot would you prefer to be? Church, which one do you want to be? Confessingly, I can't count the number of times that my prayers have been something like, God, I have completely failed to be a vessel for honorable use in your house. This is the power of the work of God, though, that he makes the unclean clean again. We see this over and over in the New Testament. When the woman touches his robe, he doesn't become unclean. She becomes clean. Our proximity to Jesus restores that honorable use for us. What good news is that? So, by the Spirit, church, verse 9 tells you, you are able to live a life pleasing to God. Notice the Trinitarian language in verse 9. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, isn't that interesting? What's going on here? Is Paul using these terms interchangeably? Well, yes, in the sense that God is one, and so each, each person operates in that way, but I think he's also using them differently on purpose to highlight the differences between particularly the Spirit and Christ, the works of those two. It's like he's saying, because the perfect righteousness of Christ is in you, Christian, then that is a hospitable place for then the Spirit of God most holy, God most holy to dwell, take up residence in you. Since the Spirit of Christ belongs to you, then the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's nuanced, but it's there. Maybe you're there going, I don't get it. I, I, I missed that. Just add that to the list of things you don't get, get about the Trinity. It's like every time I talk to my daughter about it, it ends with one of us going, I don't know, it just is. It's three and one at the same time. I don't know how it works. So Paul continues the same thought in verses 10 through 11. Let's read. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Hopefully you can follow Paul's logic here. He's tying the spirit's work in the life of the believer to the resurrection power of God. His logic is this. Our bodies are headed towards death and decay no matter which regime you live under. But for the Christian, you have the same spirit in you now that raised Jesus from the dead. That's huge. And you will be raised here now in this life, but also, I'd argue, he's making a clear connection to our future hope and glory in our own bodily resurrection from the dead in the new creation. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, though our outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. That's the Spirit's work in us. It's that same Spirit that resurrected Christ from the dead that's now in you. He can resurrect here too. He will. Have you noticed the word uh, if in each of these verses? Each of the verses we've read so far, there's at least one if in there. If the Spirit does dwell in you. Here's a reality, but that's only if the Spirit dwells in you. There's an element to Paul's logic that acknowledges the fact that there are some in the church who don't actually have the Spirit in them. That's what he's saying, right? Which makes sense if you remember the makeup of the church. There's Jews and Gentiles together struggling to define the law's relationship to the Spirit. Paul's saying, well, 
If you're going to understand that, the first thing you have to acknowledge is if indeed the Spirit is in you. Are you truly a believer? So here's the inverse, to kind of put a finer point on it. Here's the inverse of what Paul's saying. If the Spirit's not in you, then you are in the flesh, under the law. Your body is only decaying without hope of life beyond. And instead of the Spirit dwelling in you, sin sits as the squatter in the home of your heart, making claim to ownership over you. Now, we should rightly be asking the question here as we read these ifs. How do I know if the Spirit's actually dwelling in me? Am I truly saved? How do I know? That is a a really important, great question. And just to normalize this, every Christian asks this to one degree or another at different times in our lives. The topic is assurance. And you might resonate with that and go, yeah, I often wonder about that. I don't know how how to tell. Well, I think God would love to speak some truth to that doubt in this moment here. And so we have four points up here. If you notice, the first three are things that the Spirit can dwell in you through. And the fourth one is something the Spirit cannot abide. The Spirit cannot dwell in you through. So let's unpack these. The first is the Spirit can dwell in you through your many shortcomings and failures. Some verses to support that. It is not our shortcomings that mark the evidence of the Spirit. But, and this is important, the evidence of the Spirit is the fruit born through our response to those failures and shortcomings. Repentance. That's the thing that the Spirit works. Repentance is the answer to our many shortcomings and failures. Not, the answer is not, well, the Spirit must not be in me because I keep sinning. I don't know what's going on. How can the Spirit be in me? Repentance is the answer to those shortcomings and failures. We're going to get more into that in verses 12 and 13. But for now, the Spirit can dwell in you through your many shortcomings and failures. Two, the Spirit can dwell in you through your doubts. That famous verse in Mark 9, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Those things can be true. Your simple wondering about your salvation has no bearing on the reality of your salvation, Christian. If you've claimed Christ, the language is really clear here. Belief is the entry. The spirit is the guaranteed reality. That's the truth. And if that's you, if you're here going, yeah, I I do doubt. I do struggle to know if God's word is true and good, to live it out as as if it's the right thing. I struggle with that. I would say pray for the gift of faith. Ask God to help you. Like like that person in Mark 9. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There's parts of me that don't line up here. And then I would say, too, remind yourself what's true. Read passages like this in Romans 8. Remind yourself of what's true and and seek to believe it. The third one, the Spirit can dwell in you through your slow growth. That's, That's good news, right? We are so not where we want to be, where we expect we would have been at this point. I'm 37. I should be further down the road than this. Well, maybe that's true. But the Spirit isn't bewildered or dismayed at our level of growth, but only of our deepening belief, our deepening belief. Christ is patient with you. So be patient with yourself. And while we're thinking about that, be patient with others too. Everybody's on that journey. Nobody's exactly where they'd want to be. Be patient with one another. Be patient with yourself. 
So this last one, the spirit cannot abide, the spirit cannot dwell in you through your fundamental unbelief. This is that passage in Luke 12. If you've heard of this before, it's the unforgivable sin. And you read that and go, oh no, have I done that? Oh no, that, I mean, it's a fair question. Remember Frank last week, he said, our sin is a momentary unbelief in God. Remember that? So good, so helpful. Momentary is the key word there. Not ultimate, not fundamental, but momentary. So that's it. The unforgivable sin is a fundamental rejection of the truth of God, the power of the gospel, and who Christ is. That's the unforgivable sin. That's it right there. Now, famously, in Romans 8, the original Greek here, I'm going to geek out again. The original Greek here does not contain a single verb in the imperative form, meaning a simple command. The action being done here, every time there's a verb, the action's being done by the subject. And what's the subject of chapter 8? The spirit. The spirit is the one doing the work of every verb in here. That's important. Your work, my work, church, is to simply repent and believe the gospel, the story of Jesus. That's the only evidence of the spirit dwelling in you that's needed. The spirit takes care of the fruit. And at his pace, we'll talk more about that too in a minute. So to sum this up, your fundamental belief in Jesus Christ means the spirit of, him, of Christ himself is secured for you and in you. And your failures and your doubts and your growth do not define the truth of that fact. So if that's you and you do struggle with that, that if, that if the spirit dwells in you rings loud to you, then I hope this did something to assure you the Christians here today, that the Spirit's dwelling in, in you. If you're here and you're going, yeah, I don't know if I've ever actually repented like that or believed in the way you're describing here, and you'd like to do that, we would love to do that with you. We'd love to pray with you. A simple prayer of belief and confession that Jesus is Lord over your life and all of heaven rejoices. We'd love to rejoice with heaven over your soul. One thing you can't do, though, Paul says, is sit on the fence and think you're safe. You're either for God or you're against God. There's no in-between. It doesn't work that way. Claiming Christ, yes, I'm a Christian saying that, but denying the truth of the word, not submitting yourself to it, denying the power of repentance in your life, not acting in that, makes no sense. It's just not true. Yes, I'm a Christian, but no, I don't really do any of that stuff. It doesn't make sense. It's like saying I'm a hockey fan, but I don't really watch any of the games or know any of the players or really know anything about the game itself, actually. I know there's a goalie and a puck. Am I a hockey fan, though? I don't think so. Kind of like Suns fans today? I don't know. Are you actually? Do you actually follow the game, or are you just excited that they're kind of doing well? Okay. No, the reality is I'm just not a hockey fan, right? We all under the, live under the regime of one or the other. There's no in between. It's black and white, light and dark. Paul has something else to add here of the, the reality of this indwelling of the Spirit. Now, we're going to read our final two verses for today. And as we do, remember that when Paul speaks about the flesh, when you hear that word, he's referring to living under that ruling authority versus the ruling of the Spirit in us. So, with that said, let's read verses 12 and 13 of Romans 8. 
So then, brothers, and you could say here brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This death and life conversation is both earthly and heavenly. Following the flesh, living in sin will always lead to a literal death. We know that, but the spirit in us guarantees that's not the end of the story and even offers a foretaste of that freedom life now. If you look again at the wording in verse 13, just in the English, how the, the specific wording, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you have an action that's done by the spirit, but you're doing the action. Do you see the tension he's holding there? Christians have an obligation to press into the reality of the ruling spirit in us by putting our sin to death, but doing it by that spirit. Paul's demanding and expecting clear long-term progress in becoming less like the world and more like Christ over time and saying that it's the spirit in us that does that. So how? How do we put sin to death in us? There's been so much written about this. This topic is called Mortification of Sin. A guy named John Owen literally wrote the book on that, The Mortification of Sin. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I'm going to start by this. My dad was here visiting a couple weeks ago, two Sundays ago, actually. I wasn't here two Sundays ago, in case you noticed at all. Thanks for noticing that. <laughs> No, but it was great to see him. He's not a Christian yet, uh, but please pray for him. His name's Kevin. Please, please pray for him. Uh, he said he was trying to become, as we were hanging out, he goes, you know, I'm trying to become a less negative person. And I was like, oh, that's great, Dad. He totally does that, by the way. It's like a filter for him. Like everything you say to him goes through this negative filter and comes out something, something negative. Hey, Dad, I bought a new car. I hope it doesn't explode on your next <laughs> drive. It's, it's something like that. And he does do that. He does do it more and more as he's gotten older. And I said, you know, oh, that's interesting, Dad. That's great. So how? How are you going to grow in that? How are you going to get better at that? And he said, I don't know. I guess I'll just try not to say it out loud as much. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know, Dad. I, I love you. I really don't think that's going to work, though, right? Because you're doing nothing with here. You're just not letting it out of here. That's not, that's not going to do anything. That's a terrible plan. <laughs> Remember Frank's encouragement last week regarding those neural pathways, right? You don't just become less negative by trying to be less negative or saying it out loud less often. You try to build in ways to be more positive, right? You replace that. Even better still, my dad could accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, Trusting in him to save him, negativity and all. And the Spirit's work in him will grow him over time into someone that meditates on the good, true, honorable, all these things in Philippians 4, commendable things, excellent things, praiseworthy things. The job of the believing Christian is to mortify, kill our sin. Every time this topic of the mortification of sin comes up, their primary verse is the one we just read. I think it's important that we press into how do we actually mortify our sin? To learn to hate it as God does. Not to minimize it, not to hide it, not to ignore it, not to control it, 
but to give it an eviction notice. All right, enough with the squatter's rights things, okay. We must do more than these things if we're going to mortify our sin, okay? All right, so Chuck, let's, give him, let's, let's hit him with the slide. Lots, lots going on there, okay? Lots going on there. I tried to get it all in one for you picture takers in case you want to think about this later. But the first side is how not to mortify our sin. So here's how you don't mortify your sin. You ready? First one, minimizing. Well, it's not as bad as fill in the blank. Could be worse, right? Comparing it to other sins. What about rationalizing our sin? Listen, I had a tough week. Lots going on. I was under a lot of pressure when I did that. We speak about motives and the conditions surrounding our sin in an effort to compel others to sympathize. What about blame shifting? Well, I wouldn't have done that if you would have responded to me in a different way. You know? Not taking ownership of sin, but simply blaming someone else. What about diversion? It's just a joke. Didn't mean it. Shouldn't take it that way. Don't be so serious about it. We were joking. It was someone that misunderstood us. Kind of on them. What about partial confession? I'll, I'll confess to someone, but I'll kind of leave out the ugly parts. Kind of paint myself in a little better picture. Partial confession. Controlling it. Just grabbing hold of that and going... I can do this. I can fix this. I can control this. Has that ever worked, by the way? I haven't figured it out yet. What about worldly grief? This really makes me look bad, or I can see that I hurt you. Kind of feeling bad at the effect of the sin or that we were caught, but not for the sin itself. And last one, there's so many more we could add, but victimization. You know, you're putting a lot of the blame here for my sin just on me. You know, there's... A lot going on. We blame someone else or something else is responsible for our sin. So if we do those things, we are not mortifying our sin. We're hiding it. We're doing what Adam and Eve did, right? We're hiding it, running from it, looking away, hoping it goes away. So how do we mortify our sin? Well, John Owen, again, who wrote the book, The Mortification of Sin, he would say this in so many words. He would say, how do you mortify your sin? You can't. It's only a work of the Spirit. That's what he would say. Our role is to deepen our trust and belief in the work of this dwelling Spirit in us. So when we look at it through that lens, we see the mortification of sin happens through the Spirit's work. How? The Spirit convinces you of your sin. The Spirit reminds you of the wrath of God. Do you know in Colossians it says that in your sin the wrath of God is coming for you? The Spirit reminds you of that. The Spirit brings about sorrow for your sin. The Spirit makes a way for repentance. And by the way, the fruit of repentance is not, remember the prodigal son, it's not God's disappointed look like, listen, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. No, we find the loving embrace of a father, right? Not a slap on the hand, a slap in the face, but a hug and embrace. The fruit of the repentance is that the Spirit grows you further into Christ. That's, that's what repentance gives. So that's the Spirit's work. Here's our work. Believe the Spirit's promptings. Learn to listen to his voice. John 10, Jesus says, I'm the shepherd and my sheep know my voice. Listen to the Spirit's voice. Those, those, that still small voice inside of you. 
Now, I could spend another 30 minutes on how do you, how does the Spirit speak and how do you, how do you make sure you're hearing it? The Spirit can speak through many ways, his word, his people, dreams, like, anyway. But when I talked to Frank about it earlier in the week, he said, this is how he knows if it's the Spirit's work. Three things. One, whatever he's thinking or, or feels like as a revelation does not contradict Scripture in any way. That's important. The Spirit is the in, inspiration of Scripture. He's not going to give you anything against that. His second lens he thinks of is uh, that he wouldn't have thought of that. So it's like an idea that doesn't feel natural or at home in his heart or mind. And then the third one, he says, I know it's the Spirit if I just don't really want to do it. <laughs> then I kind of know it's the Spirit in me. There's lots more we could say there, but our work is to believe the Spirit as he prompts us, as he exposes these things and listen to his voice. And I think we will hate our sin more and more as we get older. Don't you hate the effect that your sin causes on others? Man, the more you see it, the more you're like, oh, I hate that. And of course, we need to look to Christ, Hebrews 12. Look to Jesus. Your focus here, if you're mortifying your sin, cannot be on your sin. It has to be on your Savior, right? The attention is there. The eyes, the focus is on Jesus himself. Ray Ortland says this, we don't conquer our sins by heroic willpower. That's that control, right? We don't conquer our sins by heroic willpower. We confess our sins to death. That's how we mortify our sin. Confess your sins to death. That's how you put to death the deeds of the flesh. This is the work of the dwelling spirit in us. And it's leading us, remember, to life, not death. Sometimes repentance feels like, ah, like a death to repent. But you're dying to yourself. The spirit's leading you towards life. This is the work of the dwelling spirit. This is the gift of Christ and our obligation. This is our security and our responsibility. So who dwells in you, church? Who sits as the ruling master in your inner being? To which regime do you live under? And sadly, Brett's story, Brett is the guy I talked about at the very beginning who I worked with at Calvary Chapel. Brett's story ended up with him turning away from God following after a, a life of sin that led to his actual death. And in this case, he followed another regime, and it led him to an early death. Now, that may not be true in the same way for each of us, but it is true ultimately. We're all heading that way, right? So how does that story end, though? As far as assurance goes, I don't know for Brett. I saw the fruit. I worked with him. I, I loved him. I saw the fruit of the Spirit in his life, and if he was ever saved, then I believe he was saved in the end too. I don't know what to make of all that, but I also don't know what his final moments were like before God. And for that, I just plead God's mercy over him. But the question, the reason I bring that up is this question is real and it's important. It really is. Which regime do you live under? And not just which regime in your words, but in your deeds, right? More than just your words, but in the very center of you, who gets final say over how you spend your time, your lives? Is it you? Is it someone else? Or is it God and his word? Is it the spirit? Just practically, when was the last time you truly repented? To God, yes. But we can't only repent to God. Our sin affects others, doesn't it? So when was the last time you truly repented without minimizing, blame shifting, diverting, controlling to someone else? 
I know it is way too easy. It's scary easy to minimize our sin, look away from our sin, disbelieve it, just kind of hope it goes away. And as we do that, the relationships around us suffer from it. And we suffer from it. This happens way too often. It should not be so in the church. Repentance should be as regular as breathing to the Christian. Let me pray for us. Spirit, we, as we sing, we just invite you in, in this moment. Not because you're not here already, but we invite you in the sense of raise our awareness of you in this moment. Speak to us. Lord, in the home of our hearts, we want to put out the welcome mat to you. Come in, Lord Jesus. And with Psalm 139, when David prayed these great words, in our time of reflection and receiving communion, we pray these over us too, Lord. Search us and know us. Know our hearts. God, try us and know our thoughts. Literally, put us to the test and see what our thinking is like and evaluate that for us, Lord. Lord, see if there's any grievous way in us and lead us, your people, in the way everlasting. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.